This is The People's Show with Vic Nazar and Randy Janda. Hour three of The People's Show. Yes, we're getting you set for the week ahead. A couple of days off for The People's Show, but Josh and Izzy will be back on Friday. Sportsnet today. I'm going to disappear a little bit. Heading out to Kamloops. Nice. Touring the, touring the province a little bit. It's not Swing. quite uh, Europe, but... Uh, Some people call it the Paris of... Uh, of BC? Yes. Of Western Canada? Absolutely. Kamloops and then Vernon, which is like the uh, the Berlin of... No, nobody says that. No. Nobody says that. Very beautiful, though. Cool places to visit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Kamloops is nice. Vernon is nice. But they are no Nanaimo. And the proud son of Nanaimo joins <laughs> us now. Chris Faber, Canucks Army. What's going on, Chris? Doing good, guys. I know you uh talking food crimes today, so I've got a uh, list of 25 to ring off for you. So <laughs> wow. yeah. Do we got a sound bet for this or what? Food criminals. Yeah. Like, you know, if there was a top 10 or top three in the world of food criminals, your 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 mug is on that that poster. All right, Confession Tuesday, Confession Friday on a Tuesday. Uh, what's your food confession? What what ha, you know, what have you done that we haven't heard of favor cuz you've shown a lot uh lasagna and sour cream watermelon mustard like what is what is something we haven't you haven't shared yet yeah i think you know it's funny one of my favorite pizzas i heard you talking about ladysmith uh before the break there and they used to have this pizza out there called the big kahuna down at uh, robert street's pizza okay. uh it was like a thick old school style chicago kind of pizza uh and it actually had mandarin oranges on it so i know people like rip on pineapples quite a bit but the mandarin oranges mm. were were excellent like kind of you know, get a little bit of that like sugary kind of gloss onto it once it goes through the pizza oven. I, I feel like that's not even that bad of a confession, but like that's that's something that not a lot of people have probably tried. But highly recommend the mandarin oranges. Yeah, that's bad enough for me, man. I don't want my oranges anywhere near a pizza. <laughs> not anywhere near a pizza. I oh, shouts to Ladysmith though. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think the mustard and uh, and watermelon's kind of the worst of the worst. Like that's that's probably the one that uh, that shocked a lot of people. And I know the sour cream and lasagna thing in the past. Like I, I think I might have a problem with putting Parmesan cheese on way too many things. Like I'll you know I'll put it on like ramen noodles. I'll put it on pizza. I'll put it on kind of everything that like I I have. I just I feel like Parmesan's kind of like one of my favorite uh, cheeses. So I have like no problem adding it to some pretty much anything. Like aside from like maybe cereal. Like that might be the only thing I'll keep Parmesan off of. But that might be a little bit of a problem there. That's a little bit of a food confession, I guess. All right, the ramen purists are going to come after you after after that take. Got Parmesan <laughs> cheese on ramen. All right, let's talk some hockey. Uh, I got a couple of confessions out of you, but World Juniors, I, I feel like, you know, the average folks and even people that work in hockey, like really excited at the beginning of the tournament as the tournament went on, the interest in the prospects kind of waned as well. Like we, we look at the tournament, we can tell, you know, there was not much interest in the actual tournament for various reasons, as far as fans are concerned. But if, if you work in hockey, you're intrigued by the Canucks prospects that are playing, whether it's Yurimo, Truscott, Lekedemaki, but you know, the breakdown of, of the final assessment of Jonathan Lekedemaki's uh, tournament, we kind of talked about the, the expectation is quite low. How did he finish off the tournament? What was your assessment in the final few games? Yeah, the final game was kind of tough because it looked like he got banged up in the game before that. So his last couple is kind of tough to take away. Um, I just think that just the process of how he was playing the game, I think, might be the only thing that 
is a little bit worrisome. Like, he's so young that he's going to play at this tournament two more years. I'm expecting to see a lot more performance from him in December. And then, again, uh, a year and a half from now when he's playing this tournament one more time. Like, that should be the time where he is one of the best scorers on Sweden. He should be relied upon to be a top-line guy, top power play guy. But just to get an opportunity to hop right onto Sweden's power play unit, though he was on the second unit at this past tournament... Like, this would have been his 17-year-old season. If this World Juniors would have happened this past December, we're talking about a player who was going to be eligible for the upcoming draft. And we've seen him at the U18s look so good on the power play, but those are kind of the spots where, even at the draft, we kind of all knew at the time, like, this is where he's going to be good. He's going to be an NHL power play player when he gets to that level, if he keeps to progress. But I think the things that worried me a little bit were kind of the similar things that we kind of saw from Sweden and the reason why they didn't have much success uh, and only walked away with the bronze medal at this tournament was that they they just seemed to be perimeter players. Like aside from Fabian Lizell, like it, it just felt like no one on Sweden was willing to kind of go to the net, go to the dirty areas, or heck even, you know, just set up in the slot and try and get some of that easy offense away. So it, it felt a little bit like that with LeCarrie Mackey, maybe him even more than the rest of Sweden. I felt that he was a perimeter player a lot of the tournament, but which is interesting because I think when you look at a player like that, the worry about being a perimeter player can also translate to the defensive zone where you're like, you know what? He's not engaged in the defensive zone. He's floating. Um, you know, the same reason Nikolai Goldobin got benched in his first game because he wanted to break out of the zone too early. Uh, I think that with LeCaramacchi, it was like, no, he was engaged in the defensive zone. He was a player who was, you know, quick to get on loose pucks. And I thought that he was actually pretty good in the defensive zone and moving the puck up ice. It, it just felt like the perfect situation needed to present itself for him to get involved offensively. And when you have that much skill, when you have a shot that that, that is that good, um, it's unfortunate because you want to see him involved every time that there's an offensive possession. And it just felt like more times than not, he was too much on the perimeter, not moving his feet enough. And I think that was a little bit worrisome watching about the World Juniors here. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the scouting world and, and the you know, junior hockey across the world has been really impacted. And we've seen that throughout the, the last couple of drafts and people not having the same kind of viewings, the same kind of tournaments. Uh, this isn't quite the same, but to have this tournament played at this time of year meant that a number of the, the high-profile players weren't playing. It was a bit of a different pool. It was a dip, bit of a different feel. Obviously, there was a lot made about the attendance as well, so maybe not the same intensity uh, for a lot of these players. In, in your view of the way that the scouting industry, uh, whether that's the public or the team sphere, approached this tournament, like what were the takeaways in terms of how much people could could really read into how the World Juniors played out. Yeah, aside from that gold medal game, you could have fooled me and told me that there was nobody in attendance watching it. Like, the, the attendance was obviously horrible throughout the tournament. But uh, I think you're right. Like, a lot of these players are, you know, the top, top of the players that are just kind of recently drafted or even one year out at 19, 20 years old. They're kind of preparing for the NHL at this point. I think that there's... There was at least a handful, maybe even closer to a dozen players that would have made huge impacts on their team if they played in this tournament. But that that kind of opened up the door a little bit for some younger players. Like, I, I don't think, you know, it would have been tough for, for even LeCarrie Mackey to make Team Sweden if we're talking about guys like William Eklund or other, you know, other top-end players ended up playing in this tournament. So uh, I think that was kind of uh, something that could help evaluate players, not specifically coming up for this upcoming draft, but... Since we're coming just right out of the 2022 entry draft, it felt nice to kind of see how these players stacked up. Like, you know, a good example was, you know, we'll stick with LeCaramacchi here, but looking at Joachim Kemmel and how well he played with Finland, how he was able to produce, and and not even just the stats, but 
from watching him play, how much he was willing to go to the net as a smaller player, how much he was, you know, able to bang around in the defensive zone, how he was able to play with skilled players. I felt that the younger players, specifically this most recent draft crop, it was really nice to kind of watch how kind of a lot of the first round picks kind of stacked up in this tournament. Even though you were missing some of the top end guys, it did open up the door for, you know, the guys that, that aren't going to make the NHL next year uh, to see how they perform. And it also really sets it up for, for the group that isn't aging out out of this tournament to to be able to prepare themselves for the big world juniors that's coming up uh, over in the Maritimes now when they play uh, in December. I mean that's that's a tournament where I think this you know this whole tournament that we had in the summer here just didn't have much hype behind it. Um, we are going to see a big difference obviously when they get over um, in December because I think there's going to be a lot more normality to that tournament. And I think it's it's exciting for the guys that that aren't aging out just to get an opportunity to play in this World Junior one, but. Like, I'm not really taking away, like, yeah, it's great, Canada won gold, you know, it's good, they have a great junior team every year, but I don't know if it really means as much as what it is in December, just because of, you know, all the, the history behind playing, and Christmas time, everyone getting together, and, you know, I know my group of friends on the island taking a shot every time Canada scores, I don't think they were doing that uh, in August here in this past tournament. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the same level of interest, and, okay, so Sweden doesn't make it, you know, to the final game, but Finland does, we saw Yoni Yermo play against... Good teams. So when he played against top teams, when he played against top competition in this tournament, what did he look like? Because I I think that was the question as the tournament went on of, hey, when he plays Canada, when he plays top teams, how does he look? What's the assessment there? Yeah, I think it's tough because it's still junior players, right? Like I think Yanni Yermo still looked good. Um, Even against Canada, you could see himself skating his way out of trouble. Um, he's able to do that against guys that are 20 years old. The The question is, can he do that against guys who are, you know, in some of the top five leagues in the world? And the Finnish Liga is one of those leagues. That's where he's going to be going here in the fall. I think that he's not going to be able to have as much success. I think there was a lot of him just simply being a bigger, stronger, faster player than everyone at this tournament. Um, it is going to be very interesting to watch him hop back into the Finnish Liga. I think it was something like... Uh, he was averaging 20-plus minutes in his first nine games last year uh, in the top league over there in Finland, but then he finishes the season like his final 13 or something. He's he's averaging eight minutes of ice time. So obviously something happened with him and the coaching staff where there wasn't as much trust anymore um, in Yermo. So I think him going and getting an opportunity to, I believe, build some confidence. Like coming out of this tournament with a silver medal, being able to kind of have the highlight reel that he had, like we watch it online, he was able to live it and play that game and know that he was able to use his skating to the high ability and be able to escape uh, in his own zone and make breakout passes. I think even just looking at some of the analytics of uh, Finland's breaking out the puck, like, you know, Yermo did an excellent job and hopefully he can take a lot of that into what he does in the Finnish league of next season. But you did still see a lot of the mistakes that worry you about Yermo because there's some times where, you know, the forwards coming back need to make the absolute right decision because that's the way that his brain kind of thinks the game is. I'm expecting this guy to go here. And if there's any switch up, it's it's kind of just turns into a giveaway for Yermo. And we see that happen a lot more um, in Liga than we will in the World Junior Championships. So there's going to be a lot more pressure. There's going to be a lot less time. Uh, and getting a chance for him to now hopefully have some confidence from this tournament. You want to hope that he's kind of playing in the same role that he started with last year. Uh, it would kind of shock me to see him be over 20 minutes as we start the season here in Liga, but he he should be a guy who's playing in the top four. Um, and to me, like just watching him at this World Junior Tournament, this is this is the end of, of Yermo being able to be that much bigger and that much stronger than everyone. Now he's got to actually just become a hockey player who does have those strengths in his back pocket, but he simply just can't rely on them when he gets to these actual pro leagues. 
You mentioned the uh, upcoming World Juniors in, in the Maritimes over, you know, the regular time over the holidays. Uh, wh- what's it setting up for the Canucks players to, to play at that tournament? Uh, is it going to be another kind of similar crop uh, in terms of numbers? Yeah, pretty much, but they're all going to be on Sweden. Um, so we're going to see LeCarrie Mackey likely back there. I'd be shocked to see if he doesn't make that roster in December. Uh, the Four Nations tournament's going on right now, which features uh, Slovakia, Czechia, Finland, and Sweden. Um, three of those teams don't have any Canucks prospects on them, but Sweden does have uh, Elias Patterson, the left-shot defenseman, playing for them at this tournament, which starts uh, in a couple of days here, actually, uh, as well as Lucas Forcell. So there's two 18-year-olds right there. Um, they will be eligible for this tournament as well as next year's tournament. So um, to see if they get into ice time and are able to play for Sweden at this coming World Juniors, that's going to be massive for them. Um, I would also keep an eye on Jonathan Myrenberg. He's a right shot defenseman uh, who looked really good at development camp. I really liked his game. He's been able to be loaned now to the Alsvenskan. I think that might be a little bit uh, of why he's not playing at this Four Nations tournament because I do know that he is in the mix uh, for Sweden to play uh, at the World Juniors coming up here in the 2023 World Juniors. So they could end up having like four names there. Uh, maybe keep an eye on a guy like Aku Koskenvo potentially being an option to play for Finland. I don't think he would be the starter uh, for Finland in that spot, but I do think that it wouldn't really necessarily shock me to see him maybe be like the third goaltender who was playing in that spot uh, for them. But aside from that, like I, I don't think that, that a guy like Jackson Dorrington is going to make USA I don't think Damon Gardner is making Canada. Connor Lockhart, I doubt it. So I think he actually might even be aged out. So not uh, not a ton of options, but we might end up seeing like four names on Sweden, which is kind of funny um, for the Vancouver Canucks and their connection with that country. So you mentioned Jackson Dorrington, who's going to be uh, playing in the NCAA this year, Northeastern. Uh, what kind of player do we expect to see in the collegiate ranks with him? Uh, from what I've heard from some people uh, at Northeastern, they're expecting him to play a lot, which is which is great for a freshman coming in. There's been a lot of turnover for Northeastern on the back end. Um, he's obviously going to have another Canucks prospect be the captain of that team at Northeastern with Aiden McDonough. And, and Dorrington, I think the praise for him is, you know, he's sixth-round pick. It's, it's not like he's a for sure NHL player, but the reason he was picked so high is uh, because of a lot of the hockey IQ that he has. He's a smart defenseman, um, knows his angles in the defensive zone, and I think if he hops right in as a freshman, that's great. But uh, not really any expectations aside from games played for me, uh, for him this year, because it is a tough jump uh, going into the NCAA. Like, I know that uh, there's not really a lot of, like, if you think of, you know, CHL players, when they're 18, they don't have to do another jump when they turn 19. They kind of just stay in the CHL, whether it be the dub or the Q or, or the OHL. So this type of player getting a jump at 18, I do like the situation that it puts a lot of these guys in uh, when they have to play at a higher level of hockey as 19 and 20-year-olds. So... Uh, I'm excited to see how he kind of just transitions into the NCAA, but for me, not a lot of expectations. Uh, the good thing for him is he's playing in front of the best goalie in the NCAA uh, with Devin Levi there at Northeastern, so they should have you know just good defensive numbers alone from having that guy be back there who, like, I feel like it was like a 9.58 save percentage last year, like something absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so maybe that might look uh, look good for him uh, and his defensive stats, but for me, like I said, it's it's more just about the games played for him and fitting in at NCAA hockey this year. Uh, with the previous regime in Vancouver, the NCAA was uh, obviously a target for them, and then the number of players came through there. I think that's probably true across the NHL. The NCAA is seen as a more viable place for high-end players, high-end prospects to go. Do you have a sense of what uh, the Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvine, and with all the front office additions as well, what, what their view is of, of the NCAA? Yeah, I don't think 
too much has changed. I think things have changed at the top for the scouting group, but I do think that they've kept a decent amount of the same scouts kind of doing that area. I, I like you could see it over this past draft, right? They only go for Jackson Dorrington. It feels like the way that we've just seen from this management group, and there's you know there's not a lot to uh, to kind of take note of. Obviously, they haven't been in place here in upper management for a long time, but it seems like they really like the option of going with depth guys that are aging out of the NCAA more than they like drafting players that are going into the NCAA. And some of that is, I guess, because of the draft position, you know, like uh, the big pick and the big decision that they had to make uh, in the 2022 NHL entry draft was their first overall first round pick. And they take LeCarrie Mackey there. No interest in going with an NCAA player at that spot. I don't really take that too much into note, but um, it, it was a little surprising for me to see a little bit of a shift towards signing guys out of the NCAA that weren't necessarily like the top and guys coming out of the NCAA that were aging out, they seem to get some depth guys that you will see um, down in the AHL this year, like Mark Gatcombe's an example, some other players that they added at the end of last year to kind of come in. So there's there's obviously some scouting done at the NCAA level, more than maybe the leagues that are funneling into them, because we only saw Jackson Dorrington be the one draft pick. So it doesn't look like that's an area where they want to necessarily target that hard in drafts like you you know, you probably do, and if there's players available, it just seems like they, you know, they went with a lot of guys out of Sweden once again this year. So um, a little bit of a different approach, but doesn't look like it was as much of a focus of guys at the draft. But I do expect to see uh, some unrestricted free agents probably signed at the end of the NCAA season that are aging out. You're listening to the People Show. We're joined by Chris Faber of Canucks Army, and uh, Chris, you know, we we were talking about Niels Hoaglander a little bit earlier on, and last year, obviously disappointing year. It's a different regime that drafted him. So I always think, you know, after you have a disappointing year, you're always wondering, okay, where does this player fit in the big plan? Is this a make or break year for Niels? Um, I wouldn't say that. I'd say maybe as like a, a guy that's known as a top six player, potentially a make or break or even a top nine player. I think that coming into this this team, I mean, you, you look at it, they have Kuzmenko coming in now. You have Mikheyev coming in here. You have a lot of returning guys that are top nine players. Um, and just everyone that's kind of penciling out their lineup right now, it's it's pretty rare to see somebody penciling in Niels Huglander as a top nine player in this organization. And does it take an injury? Does it take really bad play from someone? And, you know, you kind of hope for neither of those things with the Vancouver Canucks. But I'd be very, like, I don't want to say surprised, but I'm, I'm kind of just curious to see how it plays out with the fourth line uh, and what Bruce Boudreaux wants on that fourth line. Because... Uh, like, you know, all I've heard about is how good Dakota Joshua is. Uh, I've seen him play in the AHL. I'm not 100% sold if he's a better player than Niels Huglander. I think um, it's going to depend what you want on that fourth line, right? Like, is Jason Dickinson a guy that kind of is, you know, building your fourth line around almost? We know kind of Curtis Lazard is going to be there down the middle, but what does that mean for the rest of the lineup and what does that mean for the rest of the fourth line? To me, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens with who's playing on that fourth line or if Niels can come into camp and, and kind of prove that he is a top-nine player in the NHL. Like, he was excellent a couple of years ago. I still think that, you know, maybe aside from from maybe JT Miller, Elias Pettersson, and, and to me, Connor Garland, like, Niels Huglander's up there for one of the best producers of offense at 5-on-5, and not necessarily just points, but always having the puck move in the right direction, always being able to continue cycles in the offensive zone. I, I think there's a lot to Niels Huglander's game the injury is going to kind of make it a little bit tough last year. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if if the AHL is a situation where they want to kind of play that out and see what happens with him. Is it a spot where he is going to be able to build confidence? Like, could could we see a first line in the AHL of Niels Amon, Linus Carlson, and, uh, and Niels Huglander playing together? Like, 
that would be very exciting in the AHL, and I bet that those three would enjoy playing with each other. But is that does that outweigh Niels Hoglander's want to play in the NHL? Because another thing is, guys from the a, you know that come from Sweden, uh, the SHL is a better landing spot for them than the AHL for a lot of them that get put into that situation. So I don't think that Huglander would be very happy going to the AHL, but you know coming off of an injury, needing to build some confidence, not really making the best first impression with the new coach. It wouldn't surprise me to see him be a guy who starts in the AHL this season. Yeah, very interesting thought there, Faber. Uh, well, thanks very much. Thanks for uh, confessing also on the food side of things. Go enjoy some watermelon mustard, all right? Absolutely. <laughs> we'll do, guys. It's not as bad as it sounds. It's just it's the mix that makes it well. You know, that's that's what works for it. I'm a big mustard guy. I'm just not a big watermelon guy, so I'll, I'll give it a try. All right, fair enough. All you right. will not be let down. All right, Faber. Thank you, man. Thanks, Faber. Have a good one, guys. There he is, Chris Faber, Canucks Army. And the thought of Niels Hoaglander starting the season in the AHL. Um, we've talked to Yannick Hansen on this show a lot during the season, during the week, uh, once a week. And, you know, he's brought it up. They, they rushed him. This guy would have been better in the minors mm-hmm. season, you know, just learning the game, make mistakes at the AHL level, learn from them rather than being thrown in the deep end. And at the NHL, it's tougher. And it, your confidence is... Can, can be destroyed. Yeah, your ice time disappears and you're in the press box, which is something that we saw with Niels Hoaglander, where the AHL was the ideal spot from the outset. Now, at this point in his career, I think Favor makes a good point of how does the player look at it? Because if you look long-term, you're saying, hey, I want to be I want to be the best player possible. It's also a contract year for a Niels Hoaglander, right? And mentally, are you in a position to say, yeah, I'll, I'm okay with the AHL? It, it is, I think, long-term, it's probably the right move. You want to get him a lot of minutes in every single situation. You have so much depth on the wings now, you don't need to force him into the lineup, maybe in a role that he might not excel in, especially if it's a fourth-line role. But as a player, how welcoming are you of that? It's tough to see. I mean, we saw it with Jake Furtanen, uh, where he started as a rookie and then spent much of his second year in the AHL. And this is two years though, a guy who's and and based on what, like what Hoaglander did versus what Vertanen did as a rookie was not even close. So Hoaglander established himself as a player that people thought they could rely on. And that went away last year. Um, it, It might seem drastic. And to your point, Randy, about how the player would respond to it, uh, I don't imagine that that would be a very popular <laughs> move. Yeah. Uh, but they have filled out the depth on the wings. They are a bunch more options for this team, probably ahead of Hoaglander um, at this point. You want the player to be happy, happy, but at the same time, you want the player to be the right type of player in your lineup. And if it requires you sending him down, which is not to Utica anymore, folks, it's down in Highway 1, and a, Niels Hoaglander, if that were to happen, he could be the first call-up. More than likely, yeah. would be. Like, you're looking for skill. He's he's the guy that probably has, not probably, will have the most skill in that lineup in Abbotsford if it started off that way. But And that makes it easier. I mean, sure look at uh, I look at Nick Robertson with the Leafs, a guy who's supposed to have you know like great goal-scoring potential, and you read the stories about, oh, he should be in the top nine, he should be in the top six, he can do all this. He's played a lot in the AHL uh, the last couple of years because that's a deep team, that's a good team. The difference is that Robertson didn't play two full seasons in the NHL and feel like you're an established player. But the option's there, and that's part of the reason that it's good to have a team that's 
bit closer to home, it's it's less dramatic. Yes, to send the player there and a player who. Look, I mean, Yannick, as you said, has been pretty straightforward with his analysis and evaluation of, of Hoaglander, and I imagine that a lot of people in the organization or certain people in the organization share that. Um, like, look, you've played in the NHL for two years. That doesn't mean anything. If you're trying to win, you have to round out your game, and there's probably something to that. He'd be a more solid player overall had he had that opportunity. Well, a couple of things on that front. You sign Ilya Mikheyev, who plays, you know, a strong five-on-five game who is a player that plays in a couple of different situations, not a power play guy, but on the PK, you know, very aggressive, brings that speed, a smart player, kind of something that maybe not the type of player exactly that you want Niels Hoaglander to be, but just brings that motor, brings that, I wouldn't say necessarily a tough game, but it's a, it's a hard skill game, though, at the same time. You know, playing on the front foot, being an intelligent player, that's what you want Hoaglander to be. And I feel like adding to that spot, adding that player specifically, you've kind of taken your foot off the gas a little bit to say, hey, we don't have to rush this guy anymore. So you've got somebody in the lineup that can maybe occupy, in a best case scenario, yeah, Mikheyev can play a top six role. But he's probably better fit on a on a third line that can play a bit of a matchup role, but he can also pop in some goals. With Hoaglander, what this does is allows you to turn the temperature down a little bit where the expectations for a guy that's played a couple of years in the league clearly rushed bit where they needed production, they needed depth on the wings. And the first year kind of played to that. Guy put up points. It was a great story. Second year, we saw the sophomore slump. We saw where the details in the game were not quite there. This will turn the temperature down. And that all that conversation of, is it a make or break season? It just turns the volume down a little bit to say, go f- work on those details and you don't have to worry about the noise. So think an interesting thought there. And it would make sense if you're looking for the right fit in that fourth line. I don't know playing with Curtis Lazar is the best interest of a Niels Hoaglander. If you believe in his skill, if you believe in what he can be, we've seen that before. Young players sometimes toggling on the fourth line is not necessarily the smartest move. I'd rather see him starting off the year anyways on the HL club where you can flex that you know offense a little bit and gain that right. confidence and hopefully that trust in the coaching staff, and then you're saying, all right, let's go. This guy's at least confident. Yeah, and I'd be curious if that was the option. Hey, you're going to be the fourth-line winger playing in Vancouver, and you're going to play 8, 10 minutes a night, or you're going to play in Abbotsford, and you're going to have the chance to really show what you can do. It, it is it is different the way that the game is presented now, the, the way the roles are, are looked at, and maybe because it's still in the lower mainland, you know, it's not as far as having to uproot his his life and the comforts that he has locally just as much. You're listening to the people show. Randy Janda, Israel fair coming up next, Dave Pinota of the fourth period. We're going to talk league wide. What's going on around the league. And what are some young teams to watch out for this year? Because a few of them started to make noise in the off season. Will it translate to W's during the regular season? That's next on the people show. Hour three of the People Show continues. Randeep Janda, Israel Fair, and Josh Elliott Wolf, who I should mention, if you missed it, 
1.30 in hour two of the show, we talked to James Coe, who's talking fantasy football, and he was he's very optimistic about when Dalvin Cook and that offense. So, you know, behind the scenes here, as James was talking, Josh was doing cartwheels. When Just- he heard the... Just positive talk about the Vikings. So pumped. Kevin O'Connell is going to change everything. Justin Jefferson for Offensive Player of the Year. There we go. Yes. And he was trashing all over Tua, which I was not happy about. But that happens. That happens. He's going to prove the haters wrong this year, is he? He's got Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddell. Patriots are falling. They're not the same team. The Jets are the Jets. It's going to happen, right? No. Could have you could have gone along for half a second. Now they'll be better than the Jets and the Seahawks. Come on, now they're going to be better than the Seahawks. How many wins? No, I think I think if you're the Dolphins, like you have to get to the the number you have to get to is like nine. Okay, like you want to be a playoff team, right? Whereas yeah. the, the Seahawks are a ceiling of eight. Like, and I, think I'm saying, I think it's going to be pretty close. Really? You and Bix should come up with some sort of bet. No, no. We'll see. Let's put... All right. All right. I like that. Uh, if you think it's going to be that close, either one of two things are happening. The Dolphins are terrible this year, or the Seahawks are better, and Drew Locke is like an MVP form. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't think that's happening. All right. Let's Vic, talk Vic will be in the cubicles. Coming up with some of the, the strategy. He's just going back from back and forth from Sports Bay right now as we speak. <laughs> Crunching numbers. It is the People Show, Randeep Janda. And we are, uh, is real fair, of course, as well. And we're now joined by Dave Pinota of the fourth period. David, how's it going, man? I'm good, boys. I'm good. Those are some two interesting options for the Dolphins, but. Um, yeah. Uh, you know. You're a Bills guy, right? Oh dear God, no! Oh, you're a Cowboys guy. That's right. That's right. I'm a ca- yes. Yeah, okay. It's almost, I mean, yeah. No, it's it. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't really talk, but no. But you're uh, but you're yeah. a neutral in this regard. Like, do you think the the Dolphins actually take that step, or they're done? They're they're not going to be good this year. I mean, I think we'll find out what the first first drive, first week, first, first two weeks. drive. <laughs> yeah, first. <laughs> yeah, and then. And then we'll then we'll figure it out. But at least it's not going to be like I don't think it's going to be a dragged out season for these guys. And then, oh, right at the end, oh, we were almost there. No, I think Dolphin fans will probably figure it out in the first little bit. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. Um, okay, so the the Dolphins still a young team. Uh, the Isles not quite a young team. They do some business uh, this week. The younger players yeah. on that team though, Noah Dobson gets a contract. Alex Romanov gets a contract. And on the you know the lower side of things, Kiefer Bellows. And some minor league deals today as well. A lot of criticism in that market. Are the Isles officially done now? Can we basically say this is the team that they start with? Because it felt like Lou Lamarillo was saying, hey, you guys don't believe in us, but this is the team, and I believe in them. Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's, it sounds like, based on what he's saying, and, and you know, there hasn't been that much chatter out there with respect to what the Isles could potentially be doing. Um, I've got to imagine that unless something falls into their lap next month, once camps get underway, that is pretty much the team that Islander fans see now that they'll see at the start of the season. Um, you know, it's funny because at the trade deadline and in the off season or start of the off season, rather, you know, the Isles message from management and, and from Lou Lamorello was, 
you know, we want to add scoring. We want to be more offensive. And apparently all of a sudden he likes his team again. So they were looking, they were certainly looking for offense. They were, I mean, it was pretty much down to the end um, that final week before Kadri decided that he wanted to go Calgary's route um, that the Owls were in on it. So, I mean, they certainly were trying. It's just, and, and Lamorello said this, that he didn't want to pay the price to give up, um, you know, the, the, whatever the cost was within the market to, to free up additional cap space. And he was trying to add a scoring winger, uh, but he said the hockey trades just weren't there for him outside of what he pulled off with getting Romanov from the Montreal Canadiens. So it, it kind of looks like status quo, and, and unless, again, something in the next you know, four or five weeks kind of falls into Lou's lap and he decides, okay, this is something that we need to pursue. The reaction uh, from Islander fans has been, I think, largely negative. There was an expectation that they would do something more than this. And when you look across yeah. the league, uh, you know, the Flames, it seemed like they were going to have a, a horrible offseason, an offseason that maybe no one could top. But now the, perspe- the perception there is that, um, look, the Bradtree Living did all right. They've got some, some big-name players there. The Kadri contract even puts that over the top. Do you look across the league at anyone that, that has had a, a more disappointing offseason than the Islanders? Oh, they're certainly up there. I, I would throw Philadelphia in that mix as well. Um, you know, this is another team. Their inability to free up additional cap space. They tried to move James Van Riemsdyk and his $7 million cap hit to get into the Goudreau sweepstakes and to give them more flexibility to do a few other things, and they weren't really able to do that. Um, they didn't want to cough up a first-round pick in order for somebody to take on JVR's cap it for one more season, which I understand. Um, but, you know, some teams were obviously willing to do it. And, you know, Calgary gave up a first-round pick, albeit, you know, and I guess the earliest it could be is 2024 um, in, in the later part of the first round. But anyway, they were still willing to give up a future first-round pick in order to free up the cap space to ultimately use to sign Nazem Kadri. Philly wasn't willing to do that to potentially get into the mix on either Goudreau or you know, give them options elsewhere. So you know, there are a lot of Flyer fans that are pretty frustrated with that group as well because of the lack of big movement that they you know, didn't do. Okay, so when we talk about you know the Noah Dobson deal, great value on that as well, $4 million for three years, and yeah. he's going to grow as a player. He's going to be turning into a pretty special player beyond what we see now, but... There's still a few unsigned RFAs, not huge names, but one name that I'm, I'm watching pretty closely, Rasmus Sandin of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we see that left side on defense, pretty loaded at this point. Is there a chance that he could be available? Is there a chance that, you know, if, if they don't agree to a deal pretty quick here, um, that he might be on the market? Uh, I'd be surprised unless, um, you know, you're talking about a larger type deal you're talking about a hockey type trade where they're swapping out you know talent they obviously have some cap issues in toronto they're over the cap currently depending on you know how the overall roster is structured they're basically right there um you know if they fine-tune a few things send a couple guys down but i mean yeah they still have to sign rasmus sandine and again unless something kind of creeps up on them that is that hockey type trade that gives them effectively a second line winger, which is something that they had been looking for once the off season got underway. Um, I, I think they would prefer to keep him. Quite frankly, they would rather move out, you know, a guy like Justin Hall 
um, with one year left on his deal than move Rasmus Sandin. So, I mean, they, they certainly like him. They really like him. They'd like to keep him. They'd like to hang on to him because they think that he can develop into a top four defenseman on that group. Um, but both sides are playing hardball for the time being. And I mean, some, some scenarios kind of just play out this way uh, ahead of, you know, camp. And they, again, they still have what, three, four weeks until camps really get going and, and officially start. So uh, there's still some time there. Um, but if the Leafs do consider moving him, I, I, I'm led to believe it's going to be only in the way of, of a pretty impactful hockey type trade. Last season in the East, there was such a gap between the eight playoff teams and the teams outside the playoffs, which makes it interesting to see some of the moves from the the non-playoff teams if they try to to get in there. You know, it's hard to imagine Tampa is going to take a huge step back or Florida or Toronto, but people are still waiting to see, okay, is it still going to go on forever in Pittsburgh and Washington and Boston, some of these teams that are aging out? Uh, there, there are some young teams, and I think Randy and I are going to break this down a little bit later, but I look at the Ottawa Senators and they obviously made some waves in, in trades and in free agency early in the offseason. Now that the dust has settled a little bit and there's a, a better idea of, of what everybody else has done throughout the offseason, do you think the Sens have done enough to at least be in that discussion to break through in the playoffs? I, I think they've got, they brought in some guys that have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder to a certain extent. I can't tell that um, was the guy in mini. And then they bring in Marc-Andre Fleury. They, he wasn't overly thrilled with how things kind of went in the summer in terms of them keeping him, uh, Fleury, that is. Um, and, and, you know, he certainly has something to prove and wants to prove um, that he can be a top-tier number one and, and an all-star caliber number one, which is when he was an all-star last season, um, for the Ottawa Senators. So I think, you know, this is a player that's going to be certainly motivated, not just because he's joining a new team, but also to prove some people wrong. Um, in in Ottawa, Claude Giroux going home, joining that group. I think you know he's certainly well motivated. He's been you know training um, a lot this off season so far, getting his you know get locking into a three year deal with the hometown team. But um, you know some people kind of wrote him off a little bit that he wasn't going to be a top tier caliber you know player anymore in the National Hockey League, more of a complimentary piece. Well, you know he's going to be out there trying to prove some people wrong. But yeah, he is still. Uh, an elite talent in the National Hockey League. And you look at the depth that the Senators have, um, you know, he could certainly benefit from the type of talent and young talent that they've got there. So I, I like this team. Uh, I like the way that they're structured. I, I like their, you know, overall depth. Um, but they need those younger players like the Stutzlas, and uh, they need some of their guys that performed and, and had breakout seasons last year to continue that. And they need the others like Stutzla to kind of step up and, um you know, continue the momentum that they had uh, last year. So, you know, are they going to be a team that's competing for one of the top three spots in, in the division? I don't think so, but I could see, certainly see them being in the running for a wild card position. Might be, you know, outside looking in kind of deal, but I, I certainly see them by the end of the season playing some um, competitive hockey and some meaningful hockey at that point. And they may not be done, guys. I mean, they've, they've been looking and been in on Jacob Chikrin for a while. Um, there were some reports in the last couple of weeks that if they're back in the mix, we've heard the same thing. Uh, they certainly have not closed the door on that. That's something to certainly keep tabs on as we get closer to camp. Yeah, the other team I'm looking at this year, and they made some impactful moves as well as the Detroit Red Wings. You know, Steve Eiserman's kind of doing his, his thing where he's going through the rebuild, but this summer spending some money, making some trades, spending money in 
uh, unrestricted free agency. But looking ahead to next year, they got 10 impending UFAs on this roster. Like, it feels like the real power move is coming next year. Uh, are the yeah. Detroit Red Wings, uh, whether they're a playoff team or not, it might be a little too early on that front. Are they kind of, along with Ottawa, an, the next power, one of the next powers in the Atlantic Division? Yeah, I think they're. this is going to be a... Um... First of all, I I agree with you. I don't think they're going to be taking that next step in terms of, you know, legitimate playoff contender this coming season. But I think the additions that they made by bringing in guys like Kopp and David Perrault um, and and Ben Sherrod on the back end, among some of the other additions that they've made, I think those are complementary pieces to help um, develop their younger stars and get them towards playing more meaningful hockey throughout the course of the season. I don't think they'll be in the race by any stretch by – you know, April, but to be playing uh, meaningful hockey and not bottom feeder type of hockey, even though you are a team that's, you know, on the up and you've got a young uh, a core and, and you're developing, you still want to be able to get to a point where you're now starting to play those types of games that mean a little bit extra as you get into the second half of the season. And I think those additions that they've made will certainly help them do that. And that will in turn, you know, help the development of guys like Lucas Raymond and Mo Sider and, and some of the other young stars that they've got coming up in their system. Uh, so, I mean, this is a team that I think is now getting to the point of being on the cusp of, of, of that competitive style. Um, and, and this is the next step for this club, which is why I think Steve Eiserman decided that he wanted to make these moves. Uh, you know, Dylan Larkin is somebody, their captain, that they've had discussions with all summer in trying to lock into a long-term extension. Those are ongoing, um, kind of back and forth, uh, to, to this point, and you mentioned they got a ton of other free agents. Uh, I think if they can lock in Dylan Larkin and then go into next summer uh, after a, a competitive season for, in terms of taking those next steps, you're right. I think next summer is going to be an interesting one for Stevie Y and the group in Detroit. They might be at a point at that stage where they're ready to pounce on some potentially bigger moves to help this club. We wouldn't be doing a uh, Vancouver sports talk show in August if we didn't ask you about uh, JT Miller. Uh, there's been, you know, little movement in the last couple of weeks, but it seems like with camp coming up and, you know, soon it'll be September and it'll be uh, what we continue to keep talking about. But what's your sense on, on the on the Miller situation right now? Status quo for the most part. I, I think once everybody gets back into the city and some guys are, are back now and getting a head start on that, but um, once they're at the rink more regularly, camps start to open. I, I think there'll be a bit of a revival in those discussions uh, with, with management to, to see if they can perhaps get something done there, whether it's a six-year deal, a five-year, a seven, whatever it may be. Um, at the end of the day, I think once camps get underway, you're seeing people more regularly, you're on the ice, you know, maybe his mindset shifts a little bit and says, okay, let's just try to get something done here um, and, and work something out. And same from the team side of things. They may see him, he may look great, all over again, they're anticipating another big season. All right, let's try to get ahead of this and, and bang this out now. So I think for now, you know, again, lines of communication certainly open. But I think once, you know, you, you get to camp or you get closer to camp anyway, that sense of urgency starts to revive itself, um, especially once the calendar flips to September. So I've, I've got to imagine once that does happen, that things will certainly start to pick up on that front again. Um, and then, I mean, we'll ultimately see where things kind of go from there. How much does, you know, what changes, if anything, with the, uh, the Nazem Kadri deal? Like, if you're JT Miller and Brian Bartlett, are you essentially saying, all right, that's our floor? Like, is, does that set the precedent there? Based on age, I think that's um, the step to the floor. Uh, I think he's, 
you know, certainly looking for more than that. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, having Kadri at the 7 million AAV, I think puts him close to their floor. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of go from, kind of go from there. And it, it may, it may be the overall dollars um, versus the AAV in this particular case, at least from the team side of things. But um, I, I think we're certainly going to see whatever, if it's a long-term, well, regardless, short-term or long-term, um, you know, for JT Miller, I think it's certainly going to be north of, well north of that $7 million mark that Kadri got. All right, Dave, thank you very much for joining us. I, I hope you're watching Dan Riccio's Instagram stories very closely. He's in the, he's in the mother country right now. So are uh, you... I, I, yes, I noticed, <laughs> I noticed I, the first thing he, and, and by no shock, the first thing he put on his Instagram was espresso related. It sure so, was. Yeah. Man yeah, knows his brand. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Bags, thank you very much, man. You got it. See you, boys. Thanks, Bags. There he is, David Pinota of the fourth period. And, you know, a couple of things there. The JT Miller stuff, status quo, you know, I think the next pressure point is you're looking at the beginning of training camp, right? When these deals sometimes go down, that's a, that's when everybody kind of gets together. That's where they can kind of, you know, take advantage of the leverage points that they have. And for JT Miller, it's, hey, one of the leverage points, and we heard this from Brian Bartlett a Kind of indirectly, so to speak, he kind of hinted at it, mm-hmm. saying, "Yeah, hey, once the season starts, there's a chance that we might just." It's always possible in negotiations where you just kind of shut it down and say, "Let's focus on the season." Paraphrasing here, right? But that's always a leverage point that the agent has as well. Now, if you're the team, you have an incentive to get it wrapped up than two if you want to sign the player within the parameters that you set. But I don't think before that is there really an incentive at this point in time. Not really. You've had your, you know, your talks in June around the draft, and now you kind of let it play out. You let it, everybody comes back, and then you see what that number is. You see what that term is, and you build from there. So if you're expecting something in the next week or so or next two weeks, it doesn't make sense. just doesn't make sense based on the fact that you kind of go through the key points throughout the, the summer. Yeah, it's the quiet zone. It's, it's the quiet zone, right? And you're not going to probably make a decision until decision until you're forced to which could be either training camp or some point during the year, like the trade deadline. So on that front, pretty silent. Now, we're going to hit this on the other side in hour four of the show, but wanted to kind of get those thoughts rolling on a couple of the teams. A couple of the teams we mentioned there. Which young team is ready to take the next step? So you brought up the Ottawa Senators. I brought up the Detroit Red Wings. Add a couple more to that as well. And you let us know, 650-650, which team you think takes a step next year. The New Jersey Devils are one team I'm putting in that group. An organization that a lot of people had them as a sleeper last year. Oh, yeah. They were kind of the hipster pick of, oh, yeah, hey, we're not talking about them right now, but the New York, sorry, the New Jersey Devils, they're, they're going to be a playoff team this year. We saw that prediction a lot. Didn't work out. Are they... In that conversation this year, did they do enough? And you could argue that there was, you know, some some disappointment, obviously, in the injury side of things. But they were disappointing across the board. Goaltending was a big well, part. That of was it. the thing. They felt uh, the, the part of the reason that they were identified as a sleeper was the thought that Blackwood and Bernier would provide stable enough goaltending. They had the hype of the Dougie Hamilton signing. Jack Hughes is going to take take a step and 
quite frankly, when he played, he he did look the part, but he had a couple of injuries that knocked him out. But the goaltending wasn't there. They yeah. didn't. Blackwood had some of the COVID stuff prior to the season. Mm-hmm. Then the play wasn't there, um, and the season was pretty much over for them by late November, early December. Right? Like I was like, yeah. this this is done. But they are they are coming up as a as another recurring sleeper team. And the other team that I'm going to throw into this conversation, I wouldn't have probably three months ago, but we know how free agency plays out. The Columbus Blue Jackets, a team that felt like it was going to be a very slow build. Can you convince Patrick Laine to stay in Columbus was the conversation. Well, you get Johnny Goudreau. That helps. They're still a young team, but now they have a franchise player a franchise score, yeah, and they have a young group behind those guys. Yeah, a lot of prospects. I like Columbus. So, is Columbus that much closer to taking a step now? You get your franchise player of those four teams, and you can come with another one as well. If you take the Arizona Coyotes, I, I'm gonna, I'm not taking that one seriously because we know they've got a a long way to go. But the Sens, <laughs> Wings, Blue Jackets, Devils. Speaking of a long way, I got to okay. go back to a text that came. What do you got early in the show? Which uh, it was it was a Bo Horvat related text, and uh, it was going it was uh, evaluating was putting Bo Horvat as a center. Where would he be on the depth chart for every team in the league? Okay. The final team on this list was Arizona, and the conclusion was Arizona. Bo Horvat would be the 1C. Randeep is a 1C there. You haven't seen my stride. I don't know about that. You'd be able to skate pretty well. <laughs> so, you haven't seen my stride. That that's that tells you where the people are at with the Coyotes. The, yes. The, 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 someone that texted in earlier on the show and said that you would be the first line center. I'd be competing team. at least. I, I'd, I'd come to camp ready. It's you or Nick Schmaltz. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going Nick Schmaltz on that one. But. Just, just by a little bit. All right, which of those young teams, not the Coyotes, we're not talking about the Coyotes, the Sens, Wings, Blue Jackets, and Devils are ready to take the next step. We're going to talk about that. We also got some of these bribes are coming in, Izzy. We got some really good suggestions, and we're going to bring back the make or break conversation. Who's under the microscope this year for the Vancouver Canucks? That's next on The People Show.